William Farley writes, The common denominator between success and failure seems to be the spiritual depth and the sincerity of the parents, especially the spiritual depth and sincerity of the father. There seems to be a strong correlation between the faith, commitment, and sincerity of the family's head and the spiritual vitality of his adult children. I would tell you the future of our children seems to be determined by the function of their fathers. As we continue to look upon the foundations of a thriving society, we advance forward in our text in Colossians 3. And we began by looking at the relationship between wives and husbands. Last week, we transitioned into children. So it makes logical sense then that today we now enter the text of fathers. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, and I want to bring to you a message that I have called Foundations for a Thriving Society, a Father's Control. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Verse 2, chapter 4, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You may be seated. The psalmist in Psalm 127 describes children as a heritage from the Lord. That word heritage is an interesting word, meaning legacy. Having been trained by mother and father, they are a legacy of their parents. Having been brought up in a society in which they live, they are a legacy of the culture. And as the author of life, they are the legacy of their creator. As they mature, entering the culture of their own, they will begin to make their own contribution. They will begin to influence the world in which they live. How parents then train their children determines both the future of their children and the future of society. In different yet equal ways, both parents, both mother and father, contribute to the upbringing of their children, training them in knowledge, guiding them in wisdom, and influencing them with direction. 
as head of the family, fathers have a unique role in which they uniquely shape their children, persuading them with the Lord's truth and prompting them with the Lord's will. As society goes, I think most people tend to underestimate both the influence and the importance of a father. We live in a world that labels injustice and then they tend to describe the abuse of that supposed system. What's interesting is the correlation between those injustices and the role of fathers. Where poverty has escalated, shepherding by fathers has lessened. Where education has weakened, passive fathers have strengthened. And where crime has increased, father involvement has decreased. Where there are no fathers, a child's opportunity is lessened by a fairly significant percentage. Fathers are crucial to the success of their children. And by being significant to the development of their children, they are strategic to the development of the culture. With this in mind, we turn our attention then to God's calling upon fathers. We recognize that they are instrumental in society, integral to the Lord's plan. And so we look upon our text to learn about the Father's role in Colossians 3. From this text, I want to bring to you three truths about fathers. And I want to do this by comparing a little bit of the culture, both the culture of the day and our culture today, with the commands of Christ here. Whether it be our culture today or the culture of Paul's day, each society places its demands upon fathers. It places expectations on the roles that fathers should fulfill. And so I want us to compare the expectations of society with the expectations of our Savior. And so I want you to note first that a father derives his commission from the Lord. A father derives his commission from the Lord. We begin by just that one word, fathers. For several weeks now, most of the world has been captivated by the events in England. For the first time in 70 years, there's been a change on the throne. With Queen Elizabeth's death, her son Charles had a change in both rank and title, going from Prince Charles to King Charles III. While very few of us will ever be called king or queen, I doubt any of us will even be called prince or princess. Life is structured in a similar way. So that everyday individuals go through a series of changes in rank and title throughout life. In maturity, a child transitions into the position of adult, going from boy or girl to man or woman. At marriage, that position changes from man and woman to husband and wife. The change does not end there, though. There is yet even another possible change in rank when that husband and wife, upon becoming parents, inherit this title of mother and father. <coughs> Unlike the position of Charles, though, which came to him only at the death of another, this change, this position of father and mother, comes at the birth of another. Death is inevitable. 
And so it assures that the one who follows, like Charles did in the footsteps of his mother, that someday he will likely receive that role. He is assured of a position. But a mother and father are not assured that they will ever become mother and father. Maybe it's better to say husband and wife are never assured that they will become mother and father. Birth is not guaranteed. There's no promise that every man and woman will become a parent. That privilege is determined by the will of the Lord. Such a role or such a title is not necessarily earned. It's not necessarily deserved. But rather it is given at the discretion of the Lord. Parenthood is a privilege granted to a person based on God's will, not on our wants. Those who find themselves with this title of father or mother, they're not better or worse than those who don't find themselves granted with that position. They're simply just given a different role in the Lord's plan. Those who are fortunate enough to find themselves in that position, to find themselves with that title then, are granted a role that comes with great respect and great recognition, but also great responsibility. When we recognize this truth, that mothers and fathers derive their commission as parents from the Lord, then being parents goes from burden to blessing, from problem to privilege. The question for our text becomes, though, who are fathers? In language, sometimes a male noun is used to refer to both. We don't do that so much in English anymore, but as an example, in Spanish, the word for son is hijo, an O at the end. The word for daughter is hija, with an A at the end. But a parent, if a parent has both a son and a daughter, he doesn't say that I have an hijo and an hija. He says, I have hijos. He uses the male word. And it's simply understood that that could be all-inclusive. He may have two sons. He may have a son and a daughter, or a son and many daughters. We see this in Scripture as well. If you look back at Colossians chapter 1, at the opening text, verse 2 says, To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. (coughs) The word brothers does not mean that Paul is writing only to the males of the church. Instead, the term brothers is to be all-encompassing, to refer to both men and women. To make that clear, some translations now actually say, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. The question here then is when Paul writes to fathers, does he mean to refer only to fathers, or is he using that as an all-inclusive term? to mean mother and father. In describing the birth of Moses, the author of Hebrews writes, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. The word for parents in that text is the exact same word that we find in our text in Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. It clearly, in that instance, refers to both father and mother in Hebrews. In the parallel text of Ephesians 6.4, which we'll look at later, 
Paul himself uses the same term once again. And again, in that context, it seems clear that Paul is referring to both mother and father. But look at Colossians 3.20, our text from last week. It reads this, children obey your parents. The word for parents in verse 20 is very different than the word for fathers in verse 21 in the Greek. To me, that seems to be very intentional. As if Paul wanted to write to both parents. He probably would have used the same terms in both verses. But instead, it seems that he was intending to distinguish fathers here. And here's really what I think is going on. I think there's a reason for this being ambiguous and not fully clear. I think the command of this verse can easily be meant for both mother and father. In many ways, I think it applies to mothers just as much as fathers. But I think Paul's trying to emphasize fathers here specifically. Indeed, both parents need to be guarding themselves against exasperating their children. And yet it's fathers, based both on their position as head of household and heads of the family, and with their temperament, which often shows more of a temper. It's fathers who are at most risk of breaking this command. And so it is fathers that I think is being focused on here. As we've already seen, the structure of Roman society was based upon male leadership. Within the family, it was the father's authority, something the Romans called patria potestas, which literally translates the power of the father. This was the structure of their society. And during the Greek area, when this model was adopted, we have Aristotle who he equates fathers to kings with royal authority. And he writes, a king ought to be naturally superior to his subjects, and yet the same stock as they are. That is his description of fathers. That though they are the same essence of their sons, they are superior, is what he says. And it is on this mindset that the standard for fathers is established in the culture. And because of this, then, it not only makes sense for Paul to write directly to fathers, but it causes the readers to consider that while the culture had and and even still has today their call for fathers... A father's commission really comes from the Lord. It's up to his discretion. And because it comes from the Lord, it is for the Lord to set the standard of a father. And indeed, the Lord has high standards. Fodi Bakum writes, writing of a man's responsibility, saying, whatever words we choose to use, it is clear that a young man must be ready to represent his family before God as a priest. Represent God before his family as a prophet and meet the needs of those in a household as a provider and places himself between his family and all who would do them harm as a protector. In that alone, we see that the father functions as priest, prophet, protector, and provider. If God is the one to bestow the title father, on a person. It is for him then to define the function and character of a father. Indeed, our Lord is the perfect father, 
the father of humanity. And so God himself becomes the very standard for all fathers. We read about him in Psalm 103 this morning in our scripture reading. And consider what the text says about God's role as father. Just looking at just a couple of verses of what we read. Verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 9 He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. If a father's role is not based on the culture's expectations, it should be based on the Lord's expectations. And so we must look to the Lord as his exemplification of the perfect father. And that's the picture we get. In fact, we could go throughout scripture, not just Psalm 103, and see all kinds of characteristics that our father extols. If you are a father or expect to be a father, these are the Lord's expectations. And indeed, they are stringent. These high expectations are indicative of a high calling of fathers. When the Lord calls upon fathers in their text in Colossians, He's using a title that he himself carries. He is known as God the Father. In fact, he was the first father. And so when he looks upon creation, his creation, and he uses this word fathers, he's using a description that is first applied to himself. There's a reason for this. The Lord has commissioned fathers. In creating order in the world, he has given them the task to represent him by leading their children. Specifically, a father is to direct his children towards the Lord, something we'll talk about soon. And how do we do that? By being created in his image and by exemplifying him to our children. A father directs his children towards the Lord by being like his Lord. I don't mean that we exemplify those divine traits that only God has. Rather, I mean that we imitate what we would call the communicable attributes of God, those attributes which could be applied to people also. Things like showing God's love and God's goodness and God's compassion and his kindness and so on. Man, we... We father our children as God fathers us. And we do so in order that our children may know him. To take that title, Father, that was given to you by the Lord, it is an acceptance of that responsibility to be like God the Father. And so a father derives his commission from the Lord. I want you to note second, A father decrees his command on behalf of the Lord. If fathers derive their commission from the Lord, then it stands to reason that they also work on behalf of the Lord as well. The next phrase commands fathers, do not provoke your children. It's interesting, the Christian life is so intertwined that with one responsibility in one person's life, it often creates responsibility in another person's life. What do I mean by that? 
We saw this earlier with a wife's responsibility to submit. It wasn't only her responsibility to submit, but that created a husband's responsibility then to love his wife. Now a child's responsibility to obey, in verse 20, necessitates a father's responsibility to not provoke his children, in verse 21. In fact, we could say that the call for children and fathers is exactly the same. They're both called to obey their fathers. Children are called to obey their human fathers, while human fathers are called to obey their heavenly father. For fathers, then, obedience, their obedience to God the Father, is exercised by loving their children. In light of the culture's view of fathers, it's kind of remarkable that what we see is that fathers are the ones being instructed on how to behave properly. After all, fathers are almost elevated and can do no wrong, and yet here we have Paul saying, no, you do need to bring your life in order too. Your life is not without control. The Roman culture of Paul's era, it stipulated that under no circumstance should a parent expect that children would challenge their demands. As we learned last week, and even saw just a little bit ago, it didn't matter if it was a Roman culture, a Greek culture, or even a Jewish culture. Fathers were really given unlimited power over their children. Sirach chapter 30 verse 1 tells fathers to whip their sons often. And then just 11 verses later in, in verse 12 it says, Bow down their neck, his neck in his youth and beat his sides while he is young. This was a time when a father's authority was expressed by the physical being of his children. It was an era that believed you had to break the child's will while he was young. And only then would a child become obedient. The culture's argument at that time to which Paul writes is very opposite of Christ's assertion in our text. Our text tells fathers to do the exact opposite of what the culture was saying. The command for children to obey in verse 20, it, it doesn't authorize a father to be harsh. In fact, a harsh father is not even fitting with Colossians 3.8. And it's there that believers are told to put away anger and wrath and obscene talk. The command of verse 8 then, when it is obeyed, impacts the behavior of the father here in verse 21. Last week we read of parents who brought their sons before the son, single, one son before the elders in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Verse 20 describes that son as stubborn and rebellious. Paul's exhortation here to the Colossians, it's warning fathers to not provoke their children so that they may avoid provoking this very kind of rebellious attitude in their children. Just like that described of that man in Deuteronomy. The goal of a parent is to not be so harsh with a child that they turn against the very thing that the father is trying to direct them to. Literally, that verb provoke, do not provoke, means do not make resentful. This sets forth the goal for fathers. As representatives of the Lord, having been commissioned by the Lord, Fathers are called to avoid making their children resentful of the Lord. 
Notice, though, that not provoking children does not mean not disciplining children. Look at the parallel text, Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In light of what I just shared about the culture of the day and this abuse of authority by fathers, even today, there's this tendency to go the opposite end of the spectrum. From advocating extreme harshness to advocating extreme passiveness. While some would say, like Sirach, break the will of a child, others would say the opposite. I remember a family we were trying to evangelize. And I use that word evangelize intentionally instead of discipling. We were trying to evangelize them many years ago. But it was always a struggle because the young daughter... She's not really just disobedient. She was disruptive and defiant. Beyond the normal taking toys from others because she didn't want to share or whining when she didn't get her own way, she would talk back and she would hit and she would scream. She is very much out of control of her parents. I'm not sure how it came up or what the conversation was. It was something completely unrelated. But her grandma one day said to us, you have to give children what they want when they're young. And then when they're older, you train them to obey. That explained much of what we were seeing. But the Lord's design for families is neither one of these extremes. Just as the Lord employs discipline with his children, fathers may do the same with theirs. Proverbs 23, 13 through 14, it speaks of physically disciplining, saying, do not withhold discipline, from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Proverbs thirteen twenty four goes even further, or goes as far as to equate a lack of discipline with one who hates his children, suggesting whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Discipline is the result of one's love. It indicates a level of care for somebody, a level of care that wants to see them grow. In this case, we're talking about a father's care for his children. We don't want them to see them guided by guilt. We don't want to see them derailed by disobedience. And we certainly don't want to see them suffer in sin. A father who loves his children will discipline his children. C.S. Lewis writes, if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the unconstitutional tyranny of the most selfish members. It's actually a pretty insightful comment. It's telling to think about the truth of even that last part of that statement, that a lack of regulation is not freedom, but it actually results in dominance by the person who is most selfish. In this case, we apply it to family, although we could apply it to other areas, work, government, whatever it may be. But it's the first aspect that I want us to think about. He says, if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. Kind of like the idea, if we don't understand the seriousness of man's sinfulness. We don't understand the greatness of God's holiness. Same thing here. 
without rules and discipline, we don't understand the greatness of grace. Notice what else it says in Ephesians 6.4, though. Not only does the fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline. Then it says, and instruction of the Lord. It's not merely for fathers to institute a household of discipline. They're to institute a household of instruction. More importantly, it's not that fathers merely issue their own instructions. But we look at this verse and it says the instruction of the Lord. Fathers have been delegated a task. In this case, Ephesians 6.4, I would say it would be both. Fathers and mothers have been delegated a task to fulfill their role, not for themselves, but on behalf of the Lord. And so, fathers, the Lord has called upon you to be his ambassador, not just in the world, but in the home. You're called upon by God to represent him to your wife and to your children, to bring them up in the Lord. And for the commands you issue to your children are not merely your own, but they're to be representative of his will. We decree our commands on behalf of the Lord. It's not merely the obedience we seek from verse 20. We do this because we seek to guide our children towards obedience of the Lord. Speaking just of myself here, I have this tendency to demand much of my children. Indeed, every time I get on to my children, I think of this verse. It doesn't stop me from getting on to them, but I do think of the verse. A father who provokes like me makes obedience both complicated and laborious. It is difficult to obey. It becomes a strain of anxiety in which the child never knows if they're going to meet the standards of the father. I share this freely as one of my own personal struggles. But instead of provoking our children with rigidity and strictness, our goal should be to cultivate a home in which obedience is both easy and natural. A home in which our children want to obey. In fact, very much that should picture our relationship with the Lord. Not that we have to obey, but that we want to obey our Lord. And so a father decrees his commands on behalf of the Lord. I want you to know finally that a father directs his children towards the Lord. Our verse ends with a warning saying, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Paul writes this verse with a view to the outcome. He's not merely concerned about the current circumstances. He's looking at the future effect of those circumstances. There's a principle in productivity that says, those focused on the long term will make better short-term decisions. I don't want to reduce parenting to a secular productivity standard. So please don't think that's what I'm trying to do here. Do see, though, that the effect of this verse is to orient parents towards the future by showing them what they do now will have consequences on the disposition of their children in the future. To quote Paul Tripp, 
You must be committed as a parent to long view parenting because change is a process and not an event. Even the world's best teacher, Jesus, had a process mentality, and because he did, he was willing to leave his work to unfinished people. Training takes time and is a process. And so we parent our children not just to make them into who we want them to be and who we want them to be now. We parent them in a way to make them who God wants them to be in the future. That verb here, to become discouraged, is very specific. It's used only here in the New Testament. But as typical, everyday usage was understood to signify one who has lost heart or lost his spirit. The implication is that somebody has just given up. They quit trying. And so what this verse is indicating is that this is a child who says, who is discouraged and says, I will never be able to please my father. So I'm not even going to try. A child instead goes on into his own way and rebels against the severity of the father by doing whatever he or she pleases. One person knows ten ways in which we cause our children to lose heart. We can be overprotective, meaning they really never earn our trust. We can show favoritism, not just favoring one child over another, but actually comparing them. Your brother or sister did or didn't do this, but you were the opposite. We can depreciate their worth by making them seem insignificant. We can set unrealistic goals, never rewarding them, never making them feel like they've succeeded. Maybe we fail to show them affection, never communicating that we love them. I think it was John Newton who once said that, I know my father loved me, but I don't think he ever wanted me to see his love. Six, we do so by not providing for their needs. Shelter and meals are obvious, but even a place to play, a place to study, a place to grow. We do so by a lack of standards, meaning we just leave them to their own devices and they have no direction. We can discourage our children by criticism, teaching them really only to condemn and find fault. We do so by neglect. We see that in the relationship with Absalom and David. And of course, we do so if we excessively discipline them or become abusive. It is true that each one of us will have these excessive moments in which we exasperate our children. But what is at hand here, though, in our verse is ceaseless exasperation, as in an ongoing attitude of provoking our children that leads them to become discouraged. I cannot help but think of our children as a piece of wood that is being bent and shaped. If you've seen how people take large pieces of wood and shape them into pieces of art. The woodworker works slowly, softening the wood first and then slowly bending it into a form. He does so enough that it will bend, but not so much that it breaks. And with each step, indeed, the wood begins to take shape and hold its form until we finally have this wonderful art piece created. And so it is with our children. 
The process of molding them is a delicate process in which we must instruct them, but not to the point of breaking them. How do you find the answer to this process then? When you're feeling exasperated by your children, but don't want to exasperate your children, what do you do? Go back to Ephesians 6, 4. Don't provoke them. Instruct them. Instruct them in the things of the Lord. If the goal is not to discourage our children, then the goal must be encourage them. Encourage them for what, though? Encourage them to walk with the Lord. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is often quoted in the context of the church. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, if we want our children to be part of the church, how do we apply this to being parents? What would happen if we applied this verse to our parenting? When we find ourselves frustrated by our children, we don't want to frustrate our children. And so we use those moments to instruct them in the things of the Lord and to stir them up to good works, as the verse says. Encourage them in their walk with Christ. This is the goal of a father. Indeed, it is of great concern when our children disobey. And it's not unreasonable to be concerned that we may provoke our children and discourage them so that they may lose heart with us. But our greater concern is that we may cause them to turn away from God the Father. Our task as fathers is to lead our children not just in godliness, but towards godliness by guiding them towards God. That's been the whole point of this verse. And it's the primary duty of the Father. And it is the function of that command to not provoke children. And so fathers, do not provoke your children, Paul writes, lest they become discouraged. Colossians 3.21, while it's brief, is very profound. And it offers for us those three truths. First, that a father derives his commission from the Lord. Anyone who is a father is a father because the Lord has granted him that position. Second, a father gives direction on behalf of the Lord. No father issues commands merely to please himself, but as an ambassador for Christ, he stewards his children on behalf of the Lord. They are, after all, a gift from the Lord. And third, a father directs his children toward the Lord. Certainly, we can't save our children in the terms of Christian salvation. That is the work of the Spirit. But it is the primary duty of the father to direct his children towards the Lord, at least to the best of his ability. We want to encourage our children, not discourage them. And we should promote our children, not provoke them. Let's pray. our father god we look upon you as the perfect father a father full of mercy and grace and compassion lord and so indeed you are the standard for all fathers 
Father, may you guide and direct us in this endeavor to be parents ourselves. Whether mother or father, may each of us exemplify you to our children in how we parent our children and how we guide and how we direct and how we instruct our children. And in everything we do, may we direct them towards you, Lord. Father, may it be our greatest desire to see them to come to a saving relationship with you. And may that be our motivation for being parents on your behalf. And so, Lord, we thank you for who you are and just commit our children to you and commit our lives to you. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.